0: Father, we come again to give you thanks for your word, uh, a word that is life to us. We thank you for the extraordinary labor of these men who sought to summarize the great truths of your word in such a succinct form and elegant form, and for the way it's been able to be a guide for uh, doctrinal standards of churches all over the world. Uh, even so many distant years past in its production. We pray that we would profit from our study of it and that it would continue to be useful uh, to help especially the officers of the PCA to be united in their understanding of your word. And we uh, do pray for the upcoming meeting of the Assembly. We know there are very significant tensions and uh, at play and... We do pray that um, you would be pleased to uh, enable the men to argue and to uh, contend without being contentious, uh, but uh, to try and speak the truth in love. We do pray you give us a sense of collegiality and common cause. And we ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, tonight we begin... um, uh, what you might call the second section of the Confession of Faith, um, the uh, in uh, Chad's commentary on the Confession, he begins this at chapter nine under free will, and he calls the whole section salvation. I think I like to think of this section as the work of the Spirit in salvation, and you'll have seen if you've read very far ahead that. Um, The spirit, over and over again, uh, takes central stage in in the as is appropriate, since it's the spirit's work that especially we see in the application of salvation. So we're going to be looking at. uh, We're starting with chapter ten, and we're going to, in this section, go through to chapter eighteen. We won't get that far tonight. But you can see what it is, uh, is a series of great doctrines related to our experience of salvation Uh, in somewhat of a chronological fashion, not entirely, but uh, certainly a logical fashion, but somewhat chronological. So we have effectual calling, justification, adoption, sanctification, saving faith, repentance unto life of good works, of the perseverance of the saints, and of the assurance of grace and salvation. Uh, Again, um, most of you probably know a little about every one of these topics already. And so I'm not going to be trying to teach what the Bible says on these subjects, but what I'll be doing is showing how the divines summarize what the Bible teaches uh, and point out only the things that are particularly distinctive uh, about it, uh, so that I can um, m- make more progress than I've been making. So let's begin. Effectual Calling, uh, Chapter 10. All those whom God hath predestinated unto life and those only is pleased in His appointed and accepted time, effectually, to call by his word and spirit out of that state of sin and death in which they were by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving unto them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills, and by his almighty power determining them to that which is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ. Yet so, as they come most freely, being made willing, by his grace. You'll have noticed, I hope already, but uh, if not, you can observe it uh, afresh. Um, the, uh, in each chapter as it begins, it shows they show how they're building on the chapter that's come before. And so here they're thinking of uh, God's decrees and predestination, which they've already covered, And then they're showing how what they're talking about follows from that, and it builds uh, on each other. So, first of all, we have the phrase word and spirit. This you're going to see again and again throughout this section. We've already talked about how these are uh, indivisible, but now we'll reinforce it. The call that comes is a call from the word and the spirit The call of the word, we would call an external call. It's uh, me hearing the word, gospel word preached. Um, The call, so far as the Spirit is concerned, is the eternal, internal uh, grasp of that. The Spirit um, is responsible for uh, my ability to hear, as it were, inwardly that call. And um, what I want to observe here is that they are indivisible with respect to the elect. They are divisible with respect to the non elect. The non elect uh, can have the outward call, the word, only, but not the inward call. Uh, But for the elect, the word is always attended by the power of the Spirit to make it effectual, uh, to Uh, bring them to life in Christ the second thing I want to observe is uh, that there's here always a call from and a call to they're called out of uh, a state of sin and death and to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ and again for the elect those two things are indivisible They always are called out of sin and death and always to uh, grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. Uh, The third thing that I want to observe here is that this work of the Holy Spirit is uh, a a radical inward renovation so far as the person is uh, uh, the subject of it. It includes the mind their minds are uh, enabled spiritually and savingly to understand the gospel. Not just uh, intellectually. They, they could understand the words before. But now they understand in the sense that they uh, love it, that they embrace it, they feel addressed by it. Um, and the mind, I think, can properly uh, be spoken of as enlightened because of the taking away of the heart of stone and being given a heart of flesh. In other words, the root of the mind's problem was the heart's problem. We didn't want God in our thinking, and so uh, thinking we were wise, we became fools. Um, Even though what was true about God is plain to us, that's Romans 1. And so that the heart change, uh, I've used the word disposition before, leads to the mind grasping the truth and our will going out after it as something desirable um, and then the last point here is the effect of this um, the effect is that God's purpose is accomplished uh, they are called and yet as the divine say they come most freely being made willing by his grace. Uh, it produces God's uh, purpose but as an act of a free agent and this shouldn't surprise us too much I mean it is mysterious but the fact is um, you and I can effect our purposes uh, on the part of another person uh, and yet they willingly do it. Um, You can illustrate this uh, in lots of ways, but what I usually do if I'm in a class is I'll, at that point, take a book over and flip it to one of my students who I know is attentive so it doesn't hit him in the head, and he catches it, um, looking rather startled at me. Now, um, I didn't make him catch that book. I knew he would catch it. It was my purpose that he would catch it, but because of what I knew about him and all the circumstances we were in, I knew that he would not take it, he would think it was curious, but he would knows already I'm a curious teacher. and um, the uh, But my purpose was perfectly affected, infallibly affected. I've never had that in however many 40, 50 years I've been teaching. Uh, I, I've never had a student not catch it. And uh, the... So I've infallibly imposed my will uh, on someone who freely did what I proposed. And if you and I can, mere creatures of the dust can do that sort of thing, surely God can do it. Um, so here then um, is a, a beautiful uh, <clears throat> elaboration on Jesus in John 6:44 and 45. No man can come unto me except the Father which has sent me draw him. And I will raise him up in the last day, as it is written in the prophets, they shall all be taught of God. Um, Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. All right, that's the first section. Um, Is uh, Any question on that first section? Yes, please.
1: So with some of these signs of regeneration, you know, uh, the change of heart and the change of will, would you say that also applies in the parable of the sower, where the seed was sown among the thorns and the rocky ground, that those changes also occur so that there's a a seemingly genuine response?
0: That we're going to get to the uh, uh, failure a little bit later, but what it would say... what what generally we say is that, um, well, in fact, where is it? Uh, it's in Section 4. Can we hold that till Section 4? That's when I had thought to address that. Any, anything else here? All right, let's move on to two then. This effectual call is of God's free and special grace alone, not from anything at all foreseen in man, who is altogether passive therein, until being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit. He is therefore enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered in it and conveyed in it. So here's an elaboration on one part of the earlier section uh, to make plain that coming most freely uh, is not because of anything in him not anything foreseen. In fact, the divines are very starkly uh, s- stating the matter. We are altogether passive in the effectual call, in regeneration. We are not actors in any sense. We are acted upon. Um, and uh, But when we are acted upon, we are thereby enabled to answer. So, uh, to put it in a sentence, we are acted upon in this call, but when we're acted upon, we become actors. On to section three. Elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit, who worketh where, when, who worketh when and where and how He please. So also are all other elect persons who are incapable of outwardly being called by the ministry of the word. Now, uh, this little sentence is is a a statement of one of the great beauties uh, of Reformed theology. And that is it's Reformed theology alone uh, that understands that uh, the sovereignty of God in salvation means that physical incapacity does not make for spiritual incapacity. Uh, The elect are going to be saved, and that through the work of the Spirit, changing them, who works when and where and how he pleases. And so uh, an infant who never uh, has any opportunity to hear the gospel, uh, dying that does not keep the Spirit from being being able to sovereignly and savingly change uh, the heart, the mind, and the will of that infant, and that the first thing it ever, will ever know is only to love Christ and rejoice in the salvation that he accomplished, and so, too, uh, with respect to any other person who, because of physical incapacity, cannot uh, possibly, uh, uh, whether for mental or Uh, physical, um, uh, that if God has chosen them for salvation, they will be saved by the Spirit's work, applying uh, Christ to them, bringing them into union with Christ. Um, Now, Reformed folk have differed uh, considerably um, uh, over the status of infants uh, dying in infancy, this isn't speaking to that question generally. It's only saying an elect infant. But there are some Reformed folk who thought uh, that um, uh, all infants of a covenant family dying in infancy were certainly elect. Uh, others have thought that all infants dying in infancy were certainly elect. And others think that... Uh, w- w- We don't have any way of knowing on that question, but we leave that to the uh, mercy of God, which is immeasurable. Um, So, that's a a, a refinement on the work, but it's a glorification of the Spirit's work, that uh, the Spirit will accomplish uh, his task of applying Christ to everyone for whom Christ died. Now we come uh, to four, Tony. Uh, The... Others not elected, though they may be called by the ministry of the Word and may have some common operations of the Spirit, yet they never truly come to Christ and therefore cannot be saved, much less can men not professing the Christian religion be saved in any other way whatsoever, be they, so never, be they never so diligently framed their lives according to the light of nature and the laws of that religion they do profess. And to assert and maintain that they may is very pernicious and to be detested. Now, um, we've said that the word and spirit are never separated in the experience of the elect. But we said the non-elect, the word and spirit can be um, separated. And in particular, the saving work of the spirit you see here the divines acknowledge what they call common um, operations of the spirit, um, and uh, the this would be uh, influences of, of the spirit, which uh, don't include a change of nature, and there are all kinds of when uh, they say common operations. I mean operations that everybody on earth can be subject of which are not saving operations. It's also sometimes called only external influences. But that can be a little misleading because these ex- external means external to their nature. It doesn't mean only outward things. So, for example, uh, prophecy is a common operation of the spirit. It's external, meaning it doesn't change the person's nature. It's possible for a person to be a prophet and an unbeliever, a rebellion against God. Uh, We have Balaam playing that role in the Old Testament, but more acutely, of course, we have Balaam's ass who prophesied. And uh, that didn't argue any change of nature at all with respect to the ass. Um, So, uh, back to the parable then. The... All of the seeds, except for the one that comes to be in good soil, have some, uh, or I I should say most, most of the seeds have some bright original prospect. But some gets choked out, and uh, um, the bleaching of the sun, and so on. That's word, common operations of the spirit, but they're never truly changed anyone who's changed is permanently changed um, and uh, a host of other texts are of that char- character um, the especially uh, Hebrews 6 4 and 5 uh, it, it's it, there's an enlightening there's even a taste of the heavenly gift but it, it's just a taste it's not the full meal um, the uh, they've tasted the good word of God and the, tasted the powers of the world to come but there was no permanent change to them and they fell away does, it, does that address Tony what you're interested in
1: um, maybe not quite um, I, I guess I'm thinking and this relates to perseverance of the saints as well where you might have um, you know people who You know, uh, maybe people we've all known who, you know, maybe early on have seemed to have had a positive response, uh, a seemingly genuine um, conversion. And yet, over the course of time, you kind of see them fall away, so to speak. And, um, you know, I've wondered about, you know, like in the parable of the sower, you know, were they among those who were choked out by the thorns? You know, something like that. And I just wonder about, you know, what I observe. Is it, it, was there authenticity to, um, you know, their response uh, to the gospel? And those are just some things I I wonder about. Sure.
0: Well, the clue, I think, is in 1 John. He says that they went out from us because they were not a part of us. Hmm. They were a part of us on the face of it. But their going out from us meant they were not a part of us. Um, the, um, and uh, the same thing with respect to Christ saying, the somewhat shocking uh, saying that um, uh, uh, I think it's in this section. Um, yeah, Matthew 7, 22, many will say to me in that day, that is the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? Have we not cast out devils? And in thy name done m- many wonderful works. In other words, th- these were people who uh, had uh, an external work of the Spirit such they were enabled to do remarkable things, but their hearts were never changed. And so Christ will say, depart from me. And I think that's the conclusion. Now, I, I will say, we, we need to be very um, uh, reticent to make any hard and fast conclusions. Uh, as, long, you know, as, as long as there's uh, life, there's hope. And so it's quite possible that a person may wander considerably I'd say in my own uh, life, I was brought up in the church, I had a very tender conscience, and as a very young person, I knew myself to be a sinner, and those days they took us to all these Billy Graham films, I, I bet I walked down the aisle 50 times, <laughs> it never seemed like the aisle worked for me, didn't take. <laughs> but. Uh, I, I went through a time when I went to college, uh, uh, there, uh, where I was taught that Christianity was a fraud, it was, uh, it was all the wish dreams of the second century community read back into the mouth of Jesus. And This was by a PhD in New Testament, um, uh, who, who was teaching this class, and I'd never heard such a thing. I thought, oh, well, I've just been lied to all my life. And I was very bitter about Christianity, it's been a number of years. In active antagonism toward Christianity, Um, but the Lord was pleased to uh, turn me around. Now I can't tell you if I was regenerated when I was a little kid and just had a bad time, or whether that was never true and it was only later, when I went to Labrie, that uh, the Lord changed my heart. I think the former is more likely, but uh, I can't say for sure. But So I I think what we know biblically and theologically is nobody that has this inward work of the Holy Spirit that we've just described, this inward call, ever loses that call. The Spirit never quits. But it can be interrupted. uh, And and on the other hand, a person can look like they've had that, but never had it, and it's proven in the outcome. That's the best I can do on that one. (laughs) It's a good question.
1: That helps. Thank you.
0: All right. Now this section ends with some pretty rough language. uh, To assert and maintain this, that is, there's another way to salvation than through Christ alone by the Word and Spirit called. They say it's very pernicious and to be detested. Um, But I think they think... I agree with them that the language is perfectly appropriate because um, th- this is a, a way of teaching that leads a person to eternal destruction. And uh, what provokes Paul in Galatians 1 to use such rough language, he says, uh, you've gone to another gospel, which is not another. And there are some who trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than what what we have preached, let him be accursed. And he repeats it, let him be accursed. Paul or an angel, uh, let him be accursed because he's teaching something that's destructive to eternal souls. Well, that's of effectual calling. Does anybody have a, a uh, comment or question uh, on anything that we've said all right on to of justification this is the uh, great doctrine of course uh, that uh, 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 according to which the church stands or falls uh, as was the cry of the reformation Those whom God effectually calleth, you see the first section always harkens back to the previous, um, he also freely justifieth, not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins, and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for the sake of Christ alone, nor by imputing faith itself, the act of believing or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness but by imputing the obedience and satisfaction of Christ unto them they receiving and resting on him and his righteousness by faith which faith they have not of themselves it is the gift of God now uh, straight away you see um uh a wonderful uh, characteristic of doing theology at that time, I think I've mentioned it to you before. The idea of status questionis, a theologian's wanting to address a subject, and so he wants to lay out what's the state of the question. What are we actually talking about? And very often, the clue that it's happening is you see not, nor this, no, not that, not this. And it's sort of clearing away the debris so that you can get at the pure gold. And that's what's happening here. Also, it's a clue to you that it's been a highly controverted subject. If you didn't know anything about it, of course, you know that all of these knots have to do with controversies out of the Reformation. So let's uh, look at some of the knots. Um, They're freely justified by God. First not by infusing or somehow putting righteousness in a person so that the righteousness uh, that they have and is declared righteousness is internally within them. That's infusing. That was Rome's view. Rome's view wasn't you work for your own salvation absolutely. It wasn't a bald Pelagianism. It was a gracious thing. God was infusing righteousness into them. But it was their righteousness, and they could lose it again if they uh, were sinned. Uh, so, not infusing, but rather a pardon and accepting their person as righteous. Not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone. Accounting, that's imputation. Um, They are counted as righteous because of the righteousness of Christ, not by anything that is done in them or upon them, by them. Uh, But by imputing the obedience and satisfaction of Christ to them, they receiving and resting upon his righteousness by faith, a faith that itself is the gift of God. So the righteousness that is the basis for the declaration of justification by God is, as Luther put it, an alien righteousness. If I'm declared innocent, I I may well be, but if it's based on my own personal innocence, I may go off and do something criminal again. But if I'm declared uh, righteous on the basis of some perfect person's righteousness, a righteousness that cannot change, then that declaration is a permanent declaration because it's rooted in the righteous man, Jesus Christ. And this is the hope of the gospel. It's the good news of justification. Not that somehow I have become righteous, fe- changeable and, uh, as I am, but it is a perfect righteousness of the eternal Son of God. Uh, it is an alien righteousness. Um, the, uh, and I receive that by faith. We'll go into by faith a little bit longer down the road, so I won't uh, comment too much at this point, except to say uh, it is a gen- genuine condition. You have to have that faith. It is an instrument uh, by which we receive it. But the fact is the faith itself is a gift of God. And so the the Titus uh, 3, 5 passage, not by works of righteousness by which we have done, done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. It is all of grace. So that's the first part on justification. Uh, A question... Uh, comment um, on that. All right, two. Faith, thus receiving and resting upon Christ and his righteousness, is the alone instrument of justification. Yet it is not alone in the person justified, but it is ever accompanied with all other saving graces and is no dead faith, but worketh by love. So, the first point, it's a receiving and resting upon Christ alone. Christ is the object of faith, and all it's doing, it, 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 one person said, the faith is the empty hand that uh, uh, receives Christ. Um, and yet, they say, this faith is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other, other saving graces. Uh, to put it in the phrase, we are justified by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. What is with the faith is the capacity to work by love, all saving graces. Um, but it's not that that is the ground of our justification. It is Christ. That is the ground of our justification. And faith is what receives that. And so, uh, here we have Paul and James perfectly arm and arm. Uh, that's in the footnote for this section, closing footnote. Uh, James 2.17 and following. Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone seeing how faith was wrought by his works, and works was faith made perfect. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. There is supposedly something that that at odds with Paul's doctrine, but not at all. Here's Paul. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. In both cases, they're asserting that it has to be a living faith. And in both cases, they're asserting that it is the uh, not-working-by-love element of faith, but it's the faith that just receives and rests on Christ that is the instrument of justification. Any question on that point? All right. Um, Christ, by his obedience and death, did fully discharge the debt of all those that are justified and did make proper, real, and full satisfaction to his Father's justice on their behalf. Yet, inasmuch as he was given by the Father for them and his obedience and satisfaction accepted in their stead, and both freely, not for anything in them, Their justification is only a free grace, that both the exact justice and rich grace of God might be glorified in the justification of sinners. Now here what they're getting at is that some people wanted to say there was a quandary here. If Christ has satisfied the Father's justice, then Salvation isn't a, isn't a gift it's the purchase if it's gracious then the idea of satisfaction doesn't make any sense it, 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 it's uh, because it's, it's a gift given and what the divines are saying no you don't understand uh, there are different categories that work here and this brings us back to the covenant of works and why it's so important that it really is a covenant of works. Because Christ, as the second Adam, his work really does earn our salvation. It is owed to him, as it were. And uh, as I mentioned, that's the point of that John passage. We confess our sins, he's faithful and just, to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So it is a proper, real, and full satisfaction of the Father's justice in terms of the relationship of Father and Son. But it being given to us as free grace, it does this perfect work of justice and grace kissing one another. Both the exact justice and rich grace of God are glorified in the justification of sinners. You see that point? Is that clear? All right. Um, the uh, fourth point. God did from all eternity decree to justify all the elect. And Christ did in the fullness of time die for their sins and rise again for their justification. Nevertheless, they are not justified until the Holy Spirit doth in due time actually apply Christ to them. So, to summarize this in a sentence, I put it this way, in a sense, yes, justification in eternity. In a sense, yes, in the first century, a deep in past time, but actually in due time by the Holy Spirit. Some, wanting to emphasize the gracious character, wanted to talk about eternal justification. It's decreed from eternity, but it isn't an eternal justification. Uh, Some, wanting to focus on the fact that Christ actually died for sins and was raised for our justification, that that's the time we're justified. No, Christ purchased that as a benefit for us But they're saying it doesn't become ours until the Holy Spirit changes us and actually applies Christ to us through faith. Uh, That is also a paragraph that grows out of some of the disputes at the time of the assembly, and they have continued on uh, to some degree. Fifth, God doth continue to forgive the sins of those that are justified, and although they can never fall from a state of justification, yet they may, by their sins, fall under God's fatherly displeasure and have not the light of his countenance restored to, to them until they humble themselves, confess their sins, beg pardon, and renew their faith and repentance. Now, here the, the crucial thing to help you is to contrast the courtroom and the family. Justification proper has to do with the courtroom and the judge saying the penalty against you has been satisfied and you are now counted as a righteous person on the basis of the, the alien righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. That's once for all. But then living as a son or daughter of God, we still do sin, but now we're talking about in our relationship to our Heavenly Father. The courtroom's out of the question, but now our Father wants to correct us. He wants to purify us. And we need to confess our sins and ask for forgiveness in the fatherly, uh, father-son, father-daughter context. Um, And that's part of what leads us into the whole idea of sanctification upcoming. So as long as you keep clear in your mind that justification, uh, w- once for all, has to do with the courtroom. Uh, f- it's forensic, is the term that's used in theology. And the other is familial and has to do with uh, a fatherly care and uh, growing in son-like appreciation. Any question on that? Six, the justification of believers under the Old Testament was, in all three respects, one in, in all these respects, was one and the same with the justification of believers under the New Testament. In other words, they're asserting that the Old Testament believer, by faith, in Christ, which faith was a gift, but and which was working through love, was the faith that justified in that the Father counted him righteous in Christ and counted him uh, at, at, at the, his sins as satisfied by Christ's sacrifice. J- exactly the same way that believers under the New Testament are. Uh, not with all of the explicit knowledge that we have, but the fundamental motions of soul are the same. Uh, All right, justification. Questions on that point? All right, adoption, chapter 12. Um, the uh, uh, This is noteworthy because it's the shortest chapter in the Confession of Faith. Uh, and if you want to know why, look at Chad's... Uh, Commentary um, on his theories about it. Um, but it, this is another great contribution to the, uh, of the assembly to Christian theology, to treat adoption as a separate topic. It wasn't so treated um, at the time of the Reformation. It's part of the development of covenant theology and uh, uh, the maturation of Reformed theology in the 17th century. So it first time ever treated as a topic in a, a, a confession. Uh, and, uh, but since then, adoption has grown in uh, uh, the appreciation uh, of theologians and the realization of the centrality of the doctrine of adoption, and that in fact, uh, adoption and justification, are two uh, picture uh, teachings getting at critical parts of salvation with two different framework images, one the courtroom, one the family. But uh, they're absolutely necessary to be held together, but they can't be confused because they're each getting at a crucial truth that belongs to the complexity of the whole matter. So J.I. Packer, in his great book, Knowing God, and if you haven't read the book, I highly commend it to you, but especially I commend to you chapter 19 called Sons of God. Listen to what Packer has to say about it. You sum up the whole of the New Testament teaching in a, sing- a single phrase if you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. The whole of New Testament teaching. In the same way, you sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. A very challenging uh, statement, but I think entirely uh, justified by the facts on the ground. Uh, So you have this beautiful uh, brief summation of the many wonderful ways that our understanding of our relationship to God through Christ uh, uh, hangs on these elements of uh, adoption. All those that are justified. God saveth in and for his only son Jesus to make partakers of the grace of adoption, by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God have his name put upon them, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness, are enabled to to cry, Abba, Father, are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as by a father, yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. You see the whole host of texts that come forward there. uh, They're so essential to understanding who we are in Christ, all having to do with the doctrine of uh, adoption. Well, I won't uh, comment on that any further, those texts, I'm sure, are very familiar and precious to you. But if anyone has a question, I'm happy to uh, address that. All right. Uh, Sanctification. They who are once effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them, are further sanctified, really and personally, through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, by his word and spirit dwelling in them, the dominion of the whole body of sin destroyed and the several lusts thereof are more and more weakened and mortified and they are more and more quickened and strengthened in all saving graces to the practice of true holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. So, as before, we go backward first, called, regenerated, um, having a new heart and new spirit, now real righteousness is being worked into them it's interesting here um the shorter catechism's definition of these things are, are really wonderful they're worth memorizing if you would just memorize the definition of questions and answers but justification question 33 justification is called an act of god's free grace sanctification is called the work of God's free grace. Uh, question 35. What's the difference? An act is once for all. Not continued act, an act. It's a declaration that you're righteous, that justice is satisfied. But sanctification is a work of God's free grace. It's progressive. It's ongoing. Further, recall that in the effectual call, we were altogether passive. We were acted upon. Here in sanctification, we are altogether active. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works within you to will and to do that which is pleasing to him. Um, Here again you see uh, word and spirit are at the heart of it, it is the Word telling us what our Father delights in and our Lord requires of us, and it is the Spirit indwelling us that enables us to love that Word and to begin to conform our lives accordingly. Um, the beginning of it is that the dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed. That is to say, we, could, we were once in a state where we, we could do nothing but sin, That's not every action of ours was outwardly out of conformity with the law of God. But inwardly, every action was not obeying God to glorify and enjoy him. But it was for other reasons. Um, So we were under the dominion, or uh, you could say the domination of sin. Uh, But that's been broken at the start of this whole program then ongoing, the several lusts thereof of that uh, fallen nature are more and more weakened and mortified, that is, put to death. Um, And uh, uh, we have more and more quickening that is coming to life and strengthening of all saving graces. Uh, And this leads us to the practice of holiness um, without which no man will see the Lord and which you would not want to see the Lord if you weren't growing in holiness. It would be too terrifying. Uh, Shorter Catechism 35 captures this in one simple phrase, which is so lovely. Uh, We are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. That's our calling every day. More and more to die unto sin and to live uh, unto righteousness. This sanctification is throughout in the whole man. Yet imperfect in this life, there abiding still some remnants of corruption in every part. Whence arises the continual and irreconcilable war, the flesh lusting against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. So here we have the fight of faith, well known to you from uh, Paul's uh, writings in Romans and uh, in Corinthians, um, the, uh, this is the life we live now. It, it is the age of the church militant. Uh, there's a militancy with, uh, with respect to ourselves and a militancy with, re- with respect to the world. Um, in this war, number three, although the remaining corruption for a time may much prevail, Yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, the regenerate part doth overcome, and so the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. Now here I wanted to snatch a quote and see if I could get it into the chat for you. It's a wonderful quote, one of my favorites of Luther's. Let's see if it will take it. Um, The divines are insisting here that we're never perfect, but we're ever growing. We can even go backwards, but even the going backwards is a part of growing. In in, in a sense, there's another lovely quote about that, but here's Luther's description of what they're getting at. This life, therefore, is not righteousness, but growth in righteousness. Not health, but healing. Not being, but becoming. Not rest, but exercise. We are not yet what we shall be, but we are growing toward it. The process is not yet finished, but it is going on. This is not the end, but it is the road. All does not yet gleam in glory, but all is being purified. I think that perfectly uh, gets at what the divines are trying to say there. And um, that gets at all we're going to get at this evening, I think. We've got four minutes left. You've been very patient. We've at least made a good chunk uh, in um, this section so uh, I'll stop and see if you have questions or comments or uh, any miscellaneous remarks you'd like to make. Or... Dave,
1: so you said that Westminster is the first concession to have a chapter on adoption? Yes. Huh. And are, are there others? I'm mean, just thinking...
0: Uh, other confessions that follow
1: it do they take up that theme kind of the way Westminster
0: did or well uh, there are uh, later confessions that follow Westminster but they're basically Baptist confessions and the only thing they change are the sacraments everything else is the same but uh i will say that by the time of the 20th cent or 19th century uh because of that chapter on adoption uh american presbyterians author presbyterian authors paid much more attention to it and really developed the doctrine in a way that nowhere else was it as fully developed um a uh two southern theologians in particular One wrote a whole treatise on adoption, and uh, now both of them are uh, both of their names are going out of my head. But uh, the um, effect is that led to an even deeper and richer understanding of the doctrine into the 20th century. And so there have been a number of works. Uh, uh, Sinclair Ferguson wrote a wonderful work on adoption. Uh, Packard has contributed mightily his chapter on adoption from Knowing God was published for many years as a a separate booklet Um, and uh, that's all I can think of just now Paul I preached a series of five sermons years ago on the doctrine of adoption I bet I mentioned in those sermons, uh, some of these other figures. Anyone else a question? The, um, how many had, uh, who, any of you had, had, have never read the chapter on adoption, uh, except for preparing for this class. Is this something you knew of, or is this new material to you, to anyone? You don't see anybody saying so. Uh, It
1: wasn't new, sorry. It wasn't new, but it was definitely um, the first time I read it in the Confession. Mm. Um, But I've had it elsewhere. Yes. Um, I think probably from knowing God. (laughs) Yes, yes. uh, Because I really appreciated that book so much. I probably got it from there.
0: (laughs) Yes, yeah. Well, the Confession is, uh, I think, so uh, rich but so terse, and you know, you could <laughs> you could study each one of those uh, f- phrases uh, for some time and f- be deeply uh, enriched by it. Um. All right, folks. Well, you've been very patient, and our time is up. Um, so let me close with prayer. Father, how wonderful this. Uh, the golden links of this chain uh, that um, are all links that draw us heavenward from your purpose before time now to break into time with the effectual call word and spirit working together to draw us to yourself most freely for the glorious declaration in Christ We are pardoned and we are counted as righteous. A righteousness that we can never lose because it's his. And the high privilege of being members of your family. Christ, our brother. You, our father. And all of the privileges and responsibilities gifts and graces that come in that grand relationship and Father we thank you for the work of sanctification and we do pray that we would ever long to die more and more to sin each day and come alive more and more to Christ and we ask that for his glory and for our good in his name, Amen